Would you open your Bibles, please, to Surprise, the book of Galatians. You'll all be happy to know this is Galatians sermon number 49. We're, we're almost to 50. We have a very important text this morning. And uh, I wonder how many of you yesterday, those of you who are men, were at the men's breakfast. Raise your hand if you were at the men's breakfast. Now look around at those poor suckers who weren't there. I encourage all of you to come to these breakfasts. Um, I don't know how to do this with a sweater on. I guess they're made for suits, which is another lesson to me. Um, oh, forget it. Yeah. Anyhow, um, the breakfasts are once a month, so it's not a heavy burden. Uh, there's food, and uh, there are a lot of kids. That's a neat thing. Um, all these young boys that come. And uh, so I encourage you to come and not uh, think that this is too much. If you were studying in the pastor's college, the uh, life of Jonathan Edwards, and uh, you guys don't know how easy you have it. And I always think in connection with us not wanting to give time to the church and by so doing to give it to the Lord, I think of, uh, I think of the Super Bowl. Okay, be honest, Steve. From beginning to end, all the little rituals that lead up to it, you've got to add in the time that it took to come and get the projector and the screen. Come on. And then return it. How much time does it take to do the Super Bowl properly? Come on, be honest. How much time? Six hours. Is that okay? Six? Does that sound right? Ten hours. See, Steve's honest. That's right. Okay, somewhere between six and ten hours. Is that fair? On the Lord's Day. Now, you tell me a time when you've given that much time to a worship service. Just one time. One time. If you go to Africa... <laughs> you may well give that much to one worship service. Um, now, what's my point? Well, my point is that um, when we have meetings on Saturday and they're once a month and we try to get you out of here before noon, all right, so that's an hour and a half, and then say two hours once a month, come on, guys, chill out. You can come. It's not going to kill you. Now, some of you might have a competition with the time, uh, and that's fine, but I do encourage you to come. Um, we're not thoughtless in what we plan for you. We're trying to strengthen your souls, and so we ask you to take advantage of that. Now, I hope that wasn't too nasty. It wasn't. Okay. Yeah, but I can't trust you to be a gauge of it. <laughs> because you're a young man filled with the vigor of life. You're ready to take on responsibility. Aren't you getting married? See what I was saying? <laughs> All right, we are in Galatians 5, and uh, this is a very, very encouraging morning. And it's especially fitting that we study this text as we come to the Lord's table. It has an awful lot to do to, with this table and eating and drinking here. So let's hear the Word of God. I'm starting this week with verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. 
For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you look at the text, you'll see that there's this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I said last week that the context is division in the church. So the way of dealing with it is to wheedle and cajole, to use the carrot, to use the stick, right? Every good mother, every good father knows intimately both the stick and the carrot. Now, you know what I'm referring to? It's the way of getting a donkey, a jackass to move. You can hang a carrot in front of its nose and it keeps walking towards that carrot wanting it. Or you can hit it on the back with a stick and it keeps walking forward to get away from the stick. And both of these methods are constantly employed by the Holy Spirit in our lives, by the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is the author of it. By Jesus, you look all through the Gospels and you'll see Jesus is constantly using both the carrot and the stick Many people have an error of thinking the Old Testament's the stick and the New Testament's the carrot. It's not true. The New Testament has plenty of stick in it, right? And if you look at this text, you'll see both the carrot and the stick. Now, what's the carrot? The carrot is the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, long-suffering, self-control. What's the stick? The deeds of the flesh are evident. And that long list, and you notice how I always speed up when I list the works of the flesh, because you want to get through them, because they're nasty, right? And then I slow down when I get to the fruit of the Spirit, right? But that's not all the stick is, is it? There's a worse stick here. What's the worst stick? Look at verse 21. Things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's a pretty heavy stick. What is it saying? It's saying that those who give themselves to these things, those who live in this way, will not be in heaven. Now, that's saying it positively. The negative way of saying it, which is always just under the surface, is they'll be in hell. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will go to the place that Jesus described where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth forevermore where the worm never dies, where the fire is never quenched. Now, that's a pretty heavy stick. And so there's fighting in the church. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church. He is writing to Christians in a church. 
And in the middle of here, he says, I'm going to warn you again, as I have already warned you, that those who do such things will not be in heaven. They will go to hell. And you sit there and you go, what is wrong with this man? Does he not know that we are Christians? I say to you, what man? You say the Apostle Paul. I say, what man? And then you think, well, it's a trick question. And you think, oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit. I say, yes, it's the Holy Spirit that wrote this. It's not the Apostle Paul who got up and had a sour stomach. He wrote this because he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he wrote it because it's a help to us. It's an encouragement to us. You say, well, how is it an encouragement to us? Well, it's an encouragement to us because it's painful on our hind end. And it motivates us to flee from such things. And you say, well, then it's a false warning. It's a false stick. It it threatens pain, but there's no pain behind it because you're saying that it's just for Christians who feel the heat and run forward into the kingdom of heaven, but there was never any real risk because they were already headed to heaven. And so when he says they won't inherit the kingdom of heaven, it's a hypothetical construct, right? He was talking to nobody because he's talking to a church and everybody in the church believes, right? So how many of you are believers? You say, that's ungentlemanly. Don't you know, you don't ask that in a church. You go out and you stand, what, at People's Park and you ask them that. Or you go to a Billy Graham crusade and there everybody knows what the ground rules are and they know you're going to be asked that and it's okay. But you don't ask it in a church. It's painful. I say, look, the Apostle Paul didn't write this. Now, he did write this, but you understand what I'm saying. The Holy Spirit wrote it. The Holy Spirit wrote it to a church. The Holy Spirit wrote it to a church that was fighting and divided. The Holy Spirit knew what he was doing. The Holy Spirit deals with this truthfully. And the Holy Spirit knows, and it sounds stupid to say that, of course, the Holy Spirit knows everything. The Holy Spirit knows that every church is filled with both wheat and chaff. And that in the church are those who believe in Jesus Christ and love him, and those who make a show of believing in Jesus Christ and loving him, but have no love of God in their hearts. Those who are in bondage to the law of sin and death. And so we come back to the text and you say, I thought you said this was going to be an encouraging sermon. Let's get to the encouragement. All right. But did you hear what I just said? That among us, there are those who do not know God. And the first application of this carrot and stick that we see all through Scripture is what? It is to flee to Jesus Christ. If you find in your heart that there is only a lust of the flesh and a lust of the eye and the pride of life, if you find that there is nothing in your heart that loves Jesus Christ, that you're simply a slave of Satan, why would you spend your life living in such a way? Why would you give yourself to the evil one, only carrying out the lusts of your flesh? Why would you give yourself to immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. It's a tawdry life. 
It really is quite boring. And there's a reason why people that live like that increasingly become addicted to drugs and to alcohol as they get older, or to bitterness, or sitting in front of a television, growing fat, demanding that your children bring you food so you don't have to move. I mean, think about it. This is the slavery to the evil one that characterizes how many people in this world? How many people in America? Well, Jesus said, broad, broad. And many there are that find it, but narrow and few. This is how Jesus characterized those who are believers and those who aren't. He said the majority of people are headed for hell. They're on the broad path. And it's only a narrow path that leads to heaven. And so let's go into this text understanding that we always have in front of us those who belong to God and those who hate God. You say, oh, but I don't hate God. I'm just a slave to the lusts of my flesh. And I say the lusts of your flesh are at war with God, with the Spirit of God. You hate God. Every person who is not in Christ is a God-hater. Make no mistake about that. There aren't some people who are more uh, hateful towards God named atheists than, than just the normal, nice, civil you know, American, uh, if we aren't in Christ, we are slaves of Satan. Satan hates God. Everything he does is a principle to attack and to destroy the one who made him. Now, we look at this and we see that it begins with this exhortation to walk by the Spirit. Now, what spirit is this? Well, there's no question. It's the Holy Spirit. All right. The one Jesus spoke of in John 14, when Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Notice again this division. That is the spirit of the world. The world cannot receive this. The world stands for those who don't know God, who don't love him, who don't have faith in Jesus. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So this is the spirit Jesus promised. Two chapters later in John, Jesus said this, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. It's incomprehensible. One of those statements in Scripture I can't understand. It's to your advantage that I go away, says Jesus. Can you imagine being his disciple and thinking, oh yeah, I, I look forward to it. I mean, it's ludicrous. You've been hanging with Jesus for three years, and he says, listen, it, it, it really is to the good that I go. Well, that is the value that I don't place on the Holy Spirit and that I ought. All right. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. John 16, verse 8. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You think, it's to your advantage that I go away. He says, yes, here's the advantage. You, know, you go into the advantage program, American Airlines, right? You know, and say, okay, you know, I want a benefit. <laughs> they say, okay, here's your advantage, you know. How about if we convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment? You know, would you like a $30,000 mile conviction or would you like a 60,000 mile conviction, you know? Um, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Isn't that interesting? The sin of unbelief. 
You don't usually think of sin as unbelief as having a moral, you know, it's, it's the sin of unbelief. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. In other words, Satan going to lose. I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But when he, listen to this, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. In other words, Jesus says, it's good that I leave. You'll have the advantage. I'll send the Holy Spirit. He'll convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. And everything he says will be mine. And he will disclose it to you. You kind of wonder, you know, Jesus, why don't you just disclose it on your own? You know, why don't you stay here? We like you. And we can see you and we can touch you. And that's to our liking. The Apostle Paul in our text says, I say what? Walk by the Spirit. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, notice it does not say run by the Spirit. It does not say sleep by the Spirit. It does not say think by the Spirit. It does not say feel by the Spirit. It says walk by the Spirit. Now, the word walk has a certain substance. It's a certain distinct pace. It's not running. It's not cantering. It's not galloping. And it's not stopping. It's walking. Walking takes you somewhere, there's a goal, and there's progress toward that goal. And so I ask you, do you walk by the Spirit? Each day in your life, is there evidence that you are walking by the Spirit, that you are making progress towards the goal? So you say, well, I don't know, I feel like there's no progress. And I say, well, ask your wife, she knows you. Ask your wife, am I walking by the Spirit? Do you see it? Ask your son. Ask your daughter. Ask your mother. Ask your father. Are you walking by the Spirit? Ask your foreman. Ask the person that drives Monday, tomorrow in your carpool. And you say, well, how would anyone know whether or not I'm walking by the Spirit? And that's a good question. And like a good author, the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul, being his instrument, anticipates our question and answers it. Verse 16 says, I say, walk by the Spirit and what? You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So those who walk by the Spirit do not carry out the desire of the flesh. They do not live for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Life is not about them, but is about God. It's not this world that they love, but it's the kingdom of God that they love. Now, what's true of the worldling? Well, the worldling has an entirely different life. The worldling lives for the Pacers or the Colts or IU basketball games. I went... <laughs> I went and volunteered, I think I mentioned last week, at an IU basketball game. Um, it's been 13 years I've been in Bloomington, and it still boggles my mind. 
Taylor and I love basketball. We love watching it. He loves playing it. I love watching it. But man, yesterday, Scott Clampett, we were meeting talking about taking Taylor out to a tournament in Wichita with his team that Scott coaches. And Scott was describing a young man who, uh, actually not a young man, but a number of young men who moved to Cincinnati to be a part of a certain team. You know, and they live with people in Cincinnati so that they can play with that team and be trained in basketball. <laughs> and being facetious, I looked at the parents there and Scott as he talked, and I said, uh, "No, no, no, they're not there to they're not there to play under a coach. They're actually there because there's a preacher of the Word of God who forms their character, and it's a church that they actually moved to Cincinnati for." And you look at me and you say, you stupid idiot. What a joke. I say, yeah, what a joke. But the joke's on us. We think nothing. I I know a good, a solid, well, I know a Christian family here in this community. They sent their son out to the West Coast to, to play baseball, you know. But really, he went out there so that he could be at a church because... There are elders there who spend time with the young men of the church. But they, they couldn't say that to their friends. They had to say it was for baseball. <laughs> no, it was baseball. Now, why am I laughing about this? Well, I'm laughing about this because our idolatries tend to pop out. You know, like the balloon that's filled with water, you squeeze it in your fist and all these little bubbles come out. You know, our, our idolatries come out. Basketball is the ordering principle of many people's lives. And if you don't believe me, you just go to an IU basketball game. And if that ain't an ordering principle, I don't know what an ordering principle is. So what's wrong with it? Nothing's wrong with basketball. Nothing's wrong with money. But would you deny that there are many people who money is the ordering principle of their lives? You know, the reason that you give money in church is not because you love God only, but it's to kill your idolatry. The reason you take a day a week is to kill your idolatry of time. You give it to God. All right. And so walk by the spirit. Don't give in to the deeds of the flesh. Don't worship by you basketball. Don't worship the cults. If, if so, you'll be. You know, very disappointed. I mean, come on, guys. Am I the only one that was disappointed? You know, that was a cosmic bummer, as I used to say. And yet I am very happy for uh, Tony Dungy and for his family that they didn't go further because I think it was God's gift to them that they could spend time dealing with the things that, that matter. And so he says, giving us a command, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And this means we have to be able to look at ourselves and honestly say, what are the desires of our flesh? What is the desire of your flesh? And you say, well, you know, I guess when I want to get drunk, that's a desire of the flesh. And I say, duh. Do you think you said something? (laughs) No, you haven't said anything yet. The desire of a flesh is much more often going to masquerade as a legitimate, indeed, an honorable thing. 
A desire of the flesh is, is, is earning money for the family. You know, being a good provider. And, and so you abandon your family spiritually and you give yourself to your job day and night and you have no time to do what God has called you. But you, you claim that it's really for God and for your wife and for your children. You know, desire of the flesh is making sure that you pursue excellence as you get your Ph.D. You know, and excellence is a good thing. You know, I'm going to be an excellent singer, you know. And it's not about me, it's about God, you know, and about, you know, being a good steward of the gifts God has given me. <laughs> you know? And I'm, listen, I'm saying this, I'm not trying to beat up on you, I'm trying to open my heart to you, okay? This is me. Can't you see this? All this is me, all right? So please don't get defensive with me, there's no purpose in it. Because then I'm the only one that's being honest here. All right? Let's all be honest. We can pursue academics. We can pursue money. We can pursue our children. Oh, how many women have their children as the idol of their heart? Oh, it's godly. You know, doesn't the Bible say that you should be a lover of your children? You know? And so you worship your children. And then when they leave home, it's gone. Because they were your idol and you didn't learn to be intimate with God. And so then you're on the phone every day and wheedling and cajoling and messing around in the children's lives and the husband who isn't ever going to measure up to what you wanted for your daughter, you know. Okay, I'm backing up now. <laughs> I mean, the idols are everywhere. And the Bible tells us what? What does it tell us? It says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Those who walk by the Spirit do not carry out the desire of the flesh. They don't live for these things. The Holy Spirit is at war with the flesh, as the Apostle Paul speaks of it here. And make no mistake about it, there can be no halfway covenant can be no truce. There can be no demilitarized zone. It's not a 30-year war or a 40-year war. It is a war that continues until you die. Okay? The only thing that changes is the battleground. If God blesses you, <laughs> the battleground will change. I mean, you get what I'm saying, you know? How depressing to have the same battleground your whole life. Lord, please, please help me not to give in to lust today, you know? You're 14, you pray it. You're 85, you pray it. It's the only prayer you ever have. How depressing. Wouldn't it be nice to make progress from, Lord, please help me not today to give in to lust, to, Lord, please help me today not to give in to alcohol. Are you, now, that would be depressing <laughs> because you've thrown one demon out and seven others have come in. <laughs> what you want to do is go from, Lord, please help me not to give in to lust to, Lord, please help me not to give in to greed to, Lord, please help me not to give in to pride. And if you ever arrive at pride being your main concern, you'll never leave it because that's the one that you die with. Pride is 
big. And isn't that, after all, what everything else is? Maybe not. It says, verse 17, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, this is the encouraging part. Look carefully at that verse. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. I started out talking about the fact that those who give in to these things, those who live for these things, I might put it those who are habituated to these things, their constants in their life will not enter heaven. They will not enter the kingdom of God. And I made the distinction between those who love God and know him and those who don't. All right. And I said, if you do not know God and you don't find within yourself a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, there is no hope for you. And you must pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give you faith that you may repent and believe. Don't hear anything else if that's your condition. But now I want to turn to those of you who do know Jesus Christ who have in your heart a desire to serve him. And I want to say this verse is an encouragement to you. And specifically this morning, this verse is an encouragement to you to come to this table, despite your sin. Because look at how it describes those of us who are in the spirit. It says, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. So you may not do the things that you please. You know what this shows us? This shows us. That both, and I'm going to be specific here because I have to be specific here. All right. This shows us that both the Roman Catholic Church and Campus Crusade are wrong. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the Roman Catholic Church teaches you what about regeneration, about salvation? It tells you that it's a process. And that as the love of God works in your heart, as you come to Mass, as you observe all the things that you are to observe, that day by day you are changed in such a way that you are made worthy of heaven. Okay, this is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. I'm not setting up a straw man. All right. You are infused with righteousness. And if you have enough of it when you die, you will not need to go where? To purgatory. If you don't have enough of it when you die, you will have to go where? Until such time as what? You have enough of it. All right? Because ultimately the principle with which you enter heaven is the righteousness that God works within you. Your righteousness. Now that's wrong. And the reason that it's wrong is that it's never our righteousness that gets us into heaven. It's the righteousness of Christ. Now, I don't mean to say that the Roman Catholic Church doesn't speak of the righteousness of Christ. They do all the time. But ultimately, the Roman Catholic convert will not talk to you about being saved. It is not something that happens and is complete at a point in time. It is a process. And that process is perfecting them, making them holy such that if they avoid mortal sins and as many venial as they can, all right, they may, when they die, be in a state of grace sufficient to be able to enter heaven. Now, David will correct me and tell me I got something wrong because I have an elder who is spending his life studying Roman Catholic doctrine. 
And I may have a detail wrong, but there's no doubt this is what they believe and teach. All right? This is why the Reformation happened. Okay? So over here you have this false doctrine of the fact that, yes, we love Christ. Yes, Christ did the work of the cross. Yes, we look to that work. But that work, as we look to it and love Christ, changes us such that when we enter heaven, we have been made holy enough to enter heaven. We never claim that it's our righteousness, it's the righteousness of Christ, but the righteousness of Christ changes us so that we are righteous enough to enter heaven. And it always comes back to that. Now that, I hope, after going through five chapters of Galatians, is like shaken out of our brains. We do not enter heaven because of our righteousness. We enter heaven because we have imputed, not infused, imputed to us the foreign righteousness of Christ. He is the only hope of our hearts and of our lives. We don't think we're made better and therefore we can stand a little bit before God and then more and more before God. We have the foreign righteousness of Christ judicially applied to our account, you know, forensic language, all right? And we are transferred from death to life at a point in time. Okay, now here's the other error. The other error is, well, yeah, okay, yeah, it's all about, you know, the righteousness of Christ. Um, but because it's all about the righteousness of Christ, then we are complete, you know, we are holy and we shouldn't pray prayers of confession and we shouldn't confess our sin because that's a denial of the judicial act of the Holy Spirit applying to us the righteousness of Christ. We must only acknowledge that inside of us is righteousness, that we're seated in the heavenlies, that we don't wrestle with, with uh, flesh and blood and principalities and powers, that, that we are transferred from death to life, and therefore we need to confess constantly that we're seated in the heavenlies. And if you take this doctrine that because... The righteousness of Christ is imputed, not infused, because it's completed at a point in time, because it's all about Jesus and not about us. You can see how easily you move over to this thing where your whole salvation depends upon you never admitting that you're a sinner, never seeing sin, because after all, the righteousness of Christ has been applied to me, you know? And and it's not about me, it's about God. And you come over here and, and you hear the Apostle Paul saying, the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and you say, yeah, but that's not me. I'm in Christ. I'm seated in the heavenlies. I'm done with that. <laughs> and of course, if you feel these lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eye and the pride of life waging war within you, can you see how you would be motivated to all of a sudden say, I'm done with that? You know, I'm done with that. You know, wouldn't that be nice? You remember a few weeks ago, break on through to the other side, you know, the secret of the Christian life, you know, break on through. I'm done with that, you know. No more battle, no more war, no more blood, sweat, and tears, you know. No more controversy, you know. No more flesh. I'm seated in the heavenlies. Now, I said the Roman Catholic Church, and I said Campus Crusade. Now, I don't mean to say that Campus Crusade does all bad things. That's not my point. Campus Crusade has been responsible for many of our beloved brothers and sisters in this church coming to know God through evangelism. Put us to shame. But there's an error in their doctrine, and it's promoted in their literature. And the error is 
that they take this, uh, this question of the battle between the flesh and the spirit in this, and they say, when the Apostle Paul speaks here, and like in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is showing us that there are two levels of Christians. There's one level of Christian that really is a pathetic creature. In the kingdom, but barely. And that Christian is called what? Everybody knows, right? They're called the what? The carnal Christian. But there's another kind of Christian who's seated in the heavenlies. And that Christian is not subject to the flesh. They've... Now, you know what I'm going to say, right? Long time ago, they done did what? They done did break on through to the other side. And it had to come out again, didn't it? You know? And, and, and so they're done with being carnal Christians. And, you know, the Apostle Paul had to deal with these carnal Christians in Galatians, but thank God none of us are like that, you know. We don't fight in our church, you know. Nobody's saying that you have to be circumcised, thank goodness, you know. And, you know, in this church, we're biblical. And, you know, there are carnal Christians. You know that? There's a man in my neighborhood who doesn't go to church on Sunday morning. He stays home and watches sports. It's very sad. You know, there are carnal Christians. And son, notice his car's in his driveway on Sunday morning. And I don't want you to grow up to be a carnal Christian. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with it is, number one, it's an easy way of glossing over the question of whether a soul is saved or lost. You don't ever have to think about somebody in church being lost, somebody who says they know Jesus being lost. You just say they're a carnal Christian. You know, self is still seated on the throne. You know, we've got to move them past. We've got to get them to break on through to the other side. And we never have to preach the gospel to them. We just have to explain to them that self shouldn't be on the throne of your life. So, number one, it lowers the ante hugely in the preaching across America. You don't ever preach for conversion. You just preach for getting the self off the throne. You know? But even more insidious is this. It also tells you that those who have broken on through to the other side are what? Done. Done with the battle. If you're really spiritual, if you're not a carnal Christian, you've broken on through to the other side and the war is over. And if you still have a war going on, you poor sucker, you know, what you need to do is you need to go back and break on through to the other side. You're a carnal Christian. Self is still on the throne. If you just simply will get self off the throne, you'll move to this other level of Christianity and you'll have broken on through to the other side and there'll be no more blood, and no more sweat, and no more tears, no more battle, and all this business about a 40-year and 50 and 70-year war, it's bunk. You should be living the what? The victorious Christian life, where you don't have a wife <laughs> who reminds you you're not living the victorious Christian life. You don't have any children who remind you that you haven't loved your children and disciplined them as you are. And you don't have a job which reminds you that you're working for money and not for God. And you don't have studies and, and you don't have any speed limits which remind you that you are a lawbreaker. 
you know. You, you just broke on through to the other side and you're seated in the heavenlies and every day in every way the world is getting better and better and better. I mean, come on, guys, it's seductive. This is what we want, don't we? Nobody ever signed up to be at a battle. Nobody ever signed up for blood, sweat, and tears. Right? You know what's interesting? It's interesting that when it comes to our spiritual life, if you live by the Spirit, you will live in a war. And as you get older and older, you know what you'll find out is that more and more, the people that you love and hold dear, the people that you cry with, are not going to be your family and your neighbors and your colleagues at work. It's going to be the other soldiers in the trench with you. Would you know I'm quoting scripture when I say I say it with tears or some of you that don't know God. I don't say it out of aggression. I don't say it because I have a sour stomach. I say it because when people know God, you know it. And how do you know it? Because they're covered with blood and sweat and tears. They're not ashamed of the gospel. They're brothers. They're a band of brothers. Joe here, he loves the band of brothers. He goes and spends time with them. And Joe used to think that his military buddies were his closest buddies in his life. And then God broke Joe a couple years ago. How did he do it? He smashed him down a flight of stairs. It's a plain truth. Joe was a crusty old military dude. He came to church. But God smashed him down a set of stairs. And Joe was transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And now I can go to Joe and I can confess my sins. I can talk to Joe about my desire to own all the money of the church. Joe handles the books. I can tell Joe we need to have guards in place to protect honesty in our church. I can, I can talk to Joe about anything I want. And Joe doesn't judge me because Joe knows the war inside himself. He knows he's covered with blood, sweat, and tears. He no longer romanticizes the band of brothers. He still thinks it's wonderful. But he knows there's a bigger band of brothers. And if you want to know whether it's true, Joe, raise your hand because nobody knows who you are. Is it true? Yeah, it's true. And I can point to many of you here. And so I point to those of you who this is not true of. And I say, what are you going to do? You're going to stay out of the battle. You're going to have some false concept of Christianity that's like it all has to do with whether you go to church on Sunday morning and whether or not you're... You know, wear a cross around your neck. I don't know. Whatever it is to you. 
What is your God? What do you love? You love the union? Huh? Huh? I've been a member of a union. You don't love a union. If you do, you're a pathetic creature. You love IU basketball? What a joke. Okay, brothers and sisters. Who are you? Remember that old Who song? Who are you? Tell me, who are you? Are you a band of brother? Huh? Are you a believer? Is there a battle inside of you? Well, if there is, that's the encouragement this morning. That if you are at war with yourself and do not do the things you desire... That's because you belong to God. And the Holy Spirit is doing the work, the painful and bloody work of sanctification. And you should get familiar with that word, sanctification. It's what will kill your children and make you no longer have them as idols. And you say, where did that come from? That came from my own family and it came from Thomas Watson who says that often God takes little ones when they have become idols to their parents. And you say that is God's love. As I was preparing to preach, and we'll pick up this theme again next week, and I'll elaborate a little bit on the two errors that there are with regards to this text, and I, having a run-on sentence, I would like it if the elders would come at this time, please. I thought about the liturgy I use every time we have communion and what it says. And I want you to listen real carefully because it's exactly what we've been talking about this morning. This is where I prepare you to come to the Lord's table. And there are two ways that I have to prepare you. One way is by warning you not to come if you are not a believer. All right? And you hear that every time. I say things like, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, a member of a church in good standing, not under discipline, we welcome you. And, and, and that's the saying, no. I say it positively, but you all know it's no. In other words, if you're not a Bible-believing Christian, if you're not a member in good standing of a Bible-believing church, please don't come to this table until you have placed yourself under a human authority not just the cosmic authority of God. He's appointed officers. He's given us the church. You need to say to a church, I'm under you. All right? But listen to the positive. That's the other side, which is timid souls who see this battle and think, I must be a carnal Christian. I must not be worthy of the table. Always that is emphasized here. Listen to that this morning. As we are now, dearly beloved, as we are now about to celebrate the holy communion of the body and blood of Christ, let us consider how St. Paul exhorts all persons to examine themselves before they eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For as the benefit is great, if with a truly repentant heart and living faith we receive that holy sacrament, long parenthetical statement, for then we spiritually eat the flesh of Christ and drink his blood. We dwell in Christ and Christ in us. We are one with Christ and Christ with us. All right. 
so is the danger great if we receive the same unworthily. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, what does discerning mean? If you don't discern the Lord's body, what is true of you? You're not recognizing, you're not seeing, you don't understand, okay? And therefore, I warn all who are not of the number of the faithful, all who live in any sin against their knowledge or their conscience, charging them that they profane not this holy table. Now, that's the now. But listen carefully to the yes. And yet I don't say this to exclude any repentant person, no matter how serious their sin is, but only to exclude those who continue in sin, in other words, who have given themselves to the flesh, as a principle of their lives and have not repented. And so examine your own consciences to know whether you truly repent of your sins and whether trusting in God's mercy and seeking your whole salvation in Jesus Christ, you are resolved to follow holiness and to live in peace and charity with all men. If you have this testimony in your hearts before God, be assured that your sins are forgiven through the perfect merit of Jesus Christ our Lord, and I bid you in his name to his holy table.